and welcome back to the What's Cooking podcast with me, Beth, and my co-host, Kat. We talk to food and drink entrepreneurs about their businesses, how they got started, and what gets them out of bed in the morning. Today we're here with Paul, founder of Paul A. Young Fine Chocolates. Paul and his team make their artisan chocolates from their retail stores in Camden Passage and on Wardour Street. Paul's known for his innovative, exciting and adventurous flavours. Our conversation with Paul was a really honest and open discussion about what really goes on behind the scenes of a food business. We learned about his wealth of experience and what led him to starting to work with chocolate. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi Paul. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, to start off, what was your first ever job? My first ever job, I was actually talking about this with my team this morning, because it was £1.40 an hour, and they were all talking about their hourly rates for their (laughs) first jobs, I went, mine, I could beat you because I'm older. (laughs) Um, It was as a a chef in a small hotel in County Durham, near uh, where I lived, in the northeast of England, and I worked Tuesday night after college, because I was training to be a chef, and that Thursday night, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. And I got the grand total of £25 a week, or £25, £6 a week, something like that. And every Tuesday night I had to chop a full sack of onions, like a sack, sorry. Was, and then I would do things like uh, prepare all the bar meals, while the chef would do all the restaurant meals. And then I had to wash, all, we didn't have a kitchen port, so I had to do all the pots and pans as well, after cooking and prepping. And I basically smelled like a deep fat fryer for about a year. And it, even though it was my first job, my first experience as a job, um, I thought I was working quickly, but told I wasn't. So I was like, oh my goodness, you know, that's the first time someone's told me to get moving, move your bum, you know, get work faster. I wouldn't say I learned a lot. I learned more about people. And I learned a lot about how you fit into a team, because from school mm. to a job, it's very different. That mm. kind of dynamics are different. But I knew that I still loved food. I just didn't necessarily want to do that (laughs) for a a long time, but it taught me the fundamentals of how to fit into a team, how to work as a team member, how to work um, and be respected. Um, And I have really fond memories of that particular Christmas. You know, your first Christmas was your first ever work team, and I loved it, and I got into trouble. Because I stayed out all night on Boxing Night, and my mum called the police. (laughs) Because we all went out, and, you know, you forget yourself, and... Yeah, you have one or two many vodka and cokes at dinner time, and um, the memories are lovely though. You know what I mean? So, but there's nothing bad about it. No, it's, it's a just, good experience. Because you're just learning, you have nothing to compare it against. Mm. Um, but I knew at that point it was, even though we didn't make all of our desserts there, I still knew there was something around making sweet things, even though I was doing completely the opposite. How did you get the spark for food initially? Because that sounds quite early to kind of decide that you're going to train to be a chef. It was super early because my um, I grew up in the seventies and eighties, so not much convenience food in the seventies. And I was a, I lived in a small village, mining village, with no supermarket for ten miles. We didn't own a car, so we couldn't get there unless we went on the bus. Um, so it meant that we had to make stuff. My great grandfather lived around the corner, and my grandma lived half a mile away. So we used to eat at their houses, and everything was made fresh, and we grew stuff and. Sounds idyllic, but it wasn't, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it was yeah. like what you had to do. Mm. And food was always a big part 
I think was the main part of life, really. Sunday lunch at my grandma's, Sunday tea at my grandma's, you know, everybody congregated. And baking was huge, because if you wanted cakes and things, biscuits, you made them. So that baking bit and food bit came from there, and I just loved being in the kitchen. Because you got fed. You could scrape the bowl and you could do all those things. It was, for me, that was, that was more fun than anything else. Yeah. Every fun time involved food. So that, I think that's, that's definitely where the seed was planted. But I was also creative, like my mum. Music and art were also big parts of my life. So it was all, all creative stuff. I was not academic at all. So that's how it kind of became a huge part. Do I become an artist, a musician, or a chef? Food one. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And um, so then once you finished your training, what happened then? I surrendered my training because I did three years at Durham, which was great, it was creative, it was management based as well as creative. Then I moved to York to go to Leeds University. So I lived in York, studied in York, but it was Leeds Uni, worked, moved between the two. Uh, but I only did one semester because it was really just about management and more technical stuff. The microbiology and stuff and I was like well I want to be a chef and no creativity left mm. so I left and I got I did lots of jobs my first job from leaving university was as a catering manager on an army barracks and that that was in York and that was brilliant it was only a short-term contract for three months and I loved it then I moved to Whitby in North Yorkshire and that was my first head chef's job right on the seafront two guys who wanted to set up a bistro well before Celebrity Chef, Chef started, before any of that kind of trendy food movement. It was just about fresh ingredients. And they said, there's a space, we need to kit it out from a shell. And you can come up with the menus, food, everything. And I did that for 18 months until they decided to sell it. And they did offer it to myself and the head waitress. And we're like, well, 22 years old, we don't have the money to buy a restaurant. And also didn't want to come myself down to a restaurant. But having that you know, fresh fish and things right on your doorstep. And it was it was fantastic memories. That was in 1994. Um, but what I used to do, because I was young, and chefs are known for their partying, we used to finish work at 10, 30, 11, jump in the car, drive for an hour and a half across the Yorkshire moors to Leeds to go clubbing, and then drive back in the night and go, and do, and go straight into Sunday lunch. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I realised then that, that I was limited in Whitby and I loved it. So I ended up moving back to, well, into Leeds where I thought I would find a pastry chef job. And I couldn't find one. I worked for City Catering, an agency, where I would be somewhere different every few days, which has its benefits and definitely has its downside because you've you got to know people for a few days and you have to leave. Mm. You've got to put up something, then leave. And I just couldn't find a pastry chef job. And that's what I wanted to do. And I took a one-week contract with um, Land Rover. I just launched the Land Rover Discovery, and there was a clever idea of travelling all around the country, from Scotland right down to the south, to launch it with off-roading, dry slope, dry slope skiing. So we built a ski slope in all these country parks, and you did all these activities, and got to eat. But it was Marco Pierre White who was catering with his team for this tour that went through the year. Did one week, got asked to stay on, if I could do each one all the way through. Halfway through that I got offered a job to be a pastry chef at Criterion Brasserie, which Marco had just opened the year before. So within a few weeks of that ending, I just bought this little two-up, two-down house in Leeds. And 
said yes to this new job in London, nowhere to live. And packed my house up on a Thursday, moved to London on a Friday, started work on a Monday. And lived on my friend's sofa for six months in their pub. And paid my rent by cooking Sunday lunch in that pub. <laughs> even though we were working way too many hours a week for Marco. But that's how I got into pastry. Like yeah. into the, the, the bit of food that I wanted to be in. Lucky yeah. really. What was it about pastry that sort of drew you so much over the other parts of the kitchen? I don't really know. It's, you know you don't know. Yeah. You just know you're drawn to something. Yeah, yeah. And I think maybe it's because of all the baking at home. But it was I think the creativity, the, there's a lot of history behind it. You look at the history of a steak and the history of pastry work and sugar work. I was like looking going, well the kitchen's great and I can cook a steak really well, but... There's a lot of history about how pastry and desserts and the techniques and the skills and the chemistry and the science behind it. And I love food history. Just went further back than where's the steak sourced. And I, yeah. I just looked at both like things and like fish, steak, starters, like great. But there's this history behind how puff pastry was made and how sugar work and meringues and all these delicate things were made. And I think it's probably that craft-based, hand-made mm. thing. I needed to use my hands to something and you've got to be prepared to be a pastry chef because you're there before everybody else you're there after everyone else it's a hard job and I think that's why at the minute there aren't as many pastry chefs around as so you are waiting for the last table to leave you know if someone comes in at 11 p.m. last orders they're going to have their starter their main course and then you're waiting for them to decide you have dessert or not mm. so it's a it's a hard job but I think it's a vocation as a pastry chef I think it's something you have to want to do right down to your core, no matter how tired you are, no matter how long the hours are, you still have this need to create. Every little plate, every plate is like a little sculpture, sculpture or a piece of art, and that will never leave me. Whatever I do, however my life changes, it will still involve sweet, <laughs> sugary things somewhere, pastry particularly. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I'd never yeah. thought about that actually, the difference with the sort of historic side of it. I, I mean, I, I did all the other chef stuff, and I loved it. And I still cook now, but there was something that just didn't fit. And going into pastry, it was just, there was so many skill sets, that's the other thing. I'm not disregarding any chef who is the best person cooking a steak and preparing it. But for me, it's like one dessert can have seven, eight, nine, ten skills on it. Mm. From tempering, chocolate, sugar work, fine, fine uh, preparation of fruit, fruits. And it just seemed way more colourful, creative, technical, exciting, um, artistic than any other area of the kitchen. That's changed now obviously with people like Hesse Blumenthal and lots of, lots of chefs um, who really do present savoury food now as pictures on a plate, but that didn't exist back then. That's really interesting. Really interesting. And I but that's also the, you know, when someone, when it's savoury food and it's Heston or whoever, it's, I don't want to say a gimmick, but it's kind of, that's part of yeah. their brand and their kind of ethos is that they cook like that. Whereas exactly. with pastry, whatever you're doing. It's been like that. It's, that's what it is. It yeah. It is perfecting. You know, I remember for an entire six days, all I did from 8am to two o'clock in the morning was make puff pastry every day blisters on my hands it was the it's right training marco's training and his executive pastry chef roger paisy who i'm still really good friends with you know if you want to make something well you don't make it once i think some of that some of that style of training is gone now i don't 
people would put up with it and say, what you're doing for the next six days to perfect puff pastry from scratch. Masters of it, because we used a lot of it. We didn't buy it. Everything was made fresh. Marco's ethos, fresh is best, was to make it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again till you got it right. And that practice makes perfect. You know, it's an old-fashioned saying, but it does mean that you can make really good pastry. And I did, we did a lot of that kind of thing where I would just be doing one thing for a long time. And that was the training with Marcus. Somebody would just be picking herbs, the perfect herbs, for hours, or peeling baby onions for hours every day to get the best. And I'm not sure that is quite as strict now, because we have a lot of different style food, different pre-prepared food you know, ready for us. Um, it does happen in fine dining restaurants, but on a whole, mm. I'm not sure it's quite as intense as that anymore. Um, but with chocolate, it is obviously making thousands of the same thing over and over again. That's where I get my repetitive thing from, I think. I can make, you make one chocolate great, ten, a thousand, but can you make five thousand or ten thousand the same way? And that, that training was drummed in right from day one. And I think that's how it should be. As soon as you dive in, this is how it's going to be. If you don't like it after day one, you're not going to like it after day, week, you know, yeah. weeks and weeks, months later. And I loved it. I loved the team. It was like a family. We were together for 18 hours a day some days. So you had to get on and you had to enjoy it. And I did. Wow. Did you get into chocolate work at Marco P.I.? No. no, not at all. I remember tasting chocolate and I didn't even, I didn't know I was going to be, that was in, so I was in, with Marco from 1996 onwards, and I left his restaurant in 2001, I think it was, in 2002. I didn't know I was going to be a chocolatier until 2004, maybe five, mm -hmm. when I really, really thought it's another four. It could potentially be something like a career. You know, that was a completely kind of separate thing that evolved somehow. <laughs> That's something as well that just kind of came from within you. It's just, it grew as it a passion. Yeah, I, I don't know how or why. Mm. Because I left working for Marco when I was head pastry chef at Quo Vardis on Dean Street in Soho. And I was done. I was just kind of at that point where I was like, I'm done. Yeah. And um, I went to work with MS at a place in Sheffield called a Recipe Dish Company. So I lived between London and Leeds. And um, helped develop their Chinese takeaway range, count on us, like ready meals. Yeah. I wanted to learn about procurement and business. Then I did a year with Sainsbury's with their pizza account, learning again about procurement, technical, packaging, product development. Just kind of thought, this is interesting. How does you get an idea to being a product that you can sell to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people? Then the old team from Corvardus, we got back together because everyone had left by that point, to open a restaurant or to head up the kitchen in a restaurant in Mayfair called La Rascasse at Café Grand Prix. So I did that for 18 months. And while I was there, I wrote a letter, before, before I did email, a letter to um, producer and commissioning executive at UK TV Food, because there's a show on TV called Great Food Live, which is a live daily food show with Jenny Barnett presenting. And all the chefs were on it. It was live every day, five days a week. So quite unheard of at that point to have an hour-long programme, which was entertainment, like we're doing now, but in between all the entertainment was cooking. And I wrote a letter saying, I really can show you something better than another rhubarb crumble. I remember my language. It was quite arrogant. Because I was just, I was watching it going, this is boring. We don't need another rhubarb crumble made on TV. It's been done on... 
Any other programme? I think I can show you something different that people can do that's a bit more inspirational. I got a screen test and was on the show for the duration of the show, which was over about eight or nine years. And that, that was where chocolate started. The first recipe I made on there was a chocolate recipe, which ended up in my first book. And then I would do things like the top ten Easter eggs from one pound to a hundred pounds, and the top ten Christmas gifts. I started to play with chocolate myself at home. So I decided not to be trained by anybody else because I did not want to make Belgian chocolates. Mm -hmm. That whole style is not my style. I think it had been done before to death. Everyone loved them, but it was the same flavours, the same style, the same shape, and I thought there must be something else out there. The, the only company at the time was uh, L'Artisan de Chocolat, which Gordon Ramsay had started using for his restaurants. There was a lot of press around them. They were the first kind of people trying something different. But there was nothing else. So I just used to practice at home, learn the skills, develop the products, and I entered the first Academy of Chocolate Awards in 2000 and, oh, it must be five, four or five. That was after meeting Chantal Cody from Rococo Chocolates, who then said, you need to meet Kate Johns, who now does my PR, who had been a long-term friend before she did my PR, because she'd set up National Chocolate Week. I was like, what's all this chocolate stuff? <laughs> so all this stuff was just being... Like, delivered to me, even though at that point I didn't have a chocolate business, I wasn't super well known in the chocolate industry, but I was developing chocolates for other people, for other chocolate brands, a product developer. And um, I entered my chocolates into the wards. Kate said, you have to, they're fantastic. I said, I've got no business. How do I, how do I make them if they win? Well, how do people get them? I haven't got a website. I don't even have a laptop. You know, it was all I was, I was doing the things which I don't usually do, which is, how can I not do, you know, not yeah. do it? Because I'm a yes person. Yes, I can develop that. We can make that into something. I entered them and won gold and silver awards. And the evening of the awards ceremony, I rang my business partner, James, because we had this vague idea about chocolate, like a year before. I said, I've just won these awards. Do you still want to do this idea of having a chocolate business where we make on site, which in London there was not a single place in 2000 and five, six, where you could make chocolates on-site and sell them on-site, a real shop factory. Do you still want to do it? And he said yes. But that took another two couple of years to find mm. the location, mm. build the brand, the, develop the products, and non understand what we were going to do. And I remember walking, the, I did a whole day in November in 2005, I think it was, 2005, and I walked, this, it was miles, in the morning till it got dark, about 3.30, 4 o'clock. Every location, every street where I knew I would potentially like a shop. And the, on the way back, I was walking down Essex Road in Islington, down Camden Passage, which was still all antique shops, uh, and a couple of restaurants. And I stopped and there was a shop, 33 Camden Passage, which said, for rent with upper parts, which I giggled at, because like, upper parts, <laughs> it came with a flat, you know. I'm northern, it comes with a flat, not upper parts. <laughs> And it has, there was the ground, there was sort of basement, ground floor, first floor, second floor. And I was like, that's perfect, I could live above, make my chocolates, a bit chocolat, because, you know, I really <laughs> yeah. was thinking I'm Juliet Binoche now. <laughs> but there was, a, there was, a, there was a, this piece of paper in the window, a formal piece of paper that said it had already been taken. And I was devastated. I was like, oh. But anyway, it said, it was a temperate, it was a, um, an alcohol license. So it was an application for it to be a wine shop. Uh, anyway, so I took the details down and said to James, I found a shop. So I've already got this piece of paper in the window. I think it's gone, but we should get in touch. Got in touch, and really, fun, really funny is that the landlord, the owners, 
or a temperance society in Scotland. So they would have never gotten an alcohol license through. And I went, this is like fate, isn't it? <laughs> and we, we, um, we managed to get the shop that December in 2005, have the offer accepted. And then we moved in in February 2006 to renovate and opened a week before Easter in 2006. And I moved upstairs. And it was, I mean, it was pretty derelict. It wasn't a mess. <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh, I'm really going to live here. You know, you make it work. You know, yeah. the, 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 the focus was on the shop. Yeah. But that's how it started. It was a, a strange series of coincidences and just allowing things to happen, allowing people to say, let's, let's do chocolate. Let's do, do a demonstration at the food festival. Do chocolate. I was like, this chocolate thing, clearly there was something, a need there for it, something different. I wasn't trying to reinvent the wheel, and I certainly didn't know everything because I hadn't trained with anyone. I just knew that I wanted to make fresh chocolates by hand, unpreserved. Nothing artificial, no glucose syrup, no fats other than the cocoa butter or butter if it's caramel, but no flavourings, which was rare at the time. Mm. Everyone was using kind of flavourings, extracts, compounds, and I said, well, if... A chocolate has raspberries in it, it should have raspberries in Not a flavouring or a pre-made filling. We should make it mm. like I'm a pastry chef. Yeah. And that wasn't done at that point, which surprised me a lot. That's how it, that's how it started. Um, and I didn't know what to expect in those first weeks, months. It's, it's so interesting to hear that it's an institution in mm. Islington, this shop. It's still open now. What, so that's 13 or 14 years? 14 years in April. Yeah. Which is bonkers because it feels like two minutes ago. And it came from not this grand plan of opening no. a shop. Which well, also, is... no experience of having a shop, yeah. owning a shop, manufacturing for a shop, or retailing. James and I just believed it would work. And it'll, work, and it'll last for however long it wants to last. That's yeah. the only thing James mm -hmm. and I are really fluid. We still own the business outright. We've never had to seek for external financial help, which is brilliant that we own it. We've done what we can, when we can. And we've always said it will run and last as long as it does. Mm -hmm. And we'll organically mould it and work it. And mm. we're still there, yeah. It's incredible. Bonkers, really. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, you didn't open necessarily at the easiest time either, 2006. No, well, never opened a week before Easter. What were we thinking? <laughs> we had to recuperate some of the investment, obviously. But, oh my goodness, there was, there was just me. There was myself and one guy for, he lasted a few weeks, then decided to leave because it was pretty hard work, obviously. <laughs> it's your chef, you know. But the, um, the main bit of the work came down to the, the, the climate at that point. 2006 was a very hot summer, bad for chocolate, mm. so we've got to make ice cream. Then we started making the, 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 you know, the hot chocolate that you said you love so much, dairy-free, because wanted I wanted to, people to taste real hot chocolate, not milk-based hot yeah. chocolate. Um, and then 2007 onwards, things started to go a bit rubbish, didn't they? We opened our city shop 18 months later at the Royal Exchange, and the, that huge crash. Yeah. Um, but luckily, predominantly women, thank you women everywhere, you still buy lipstick, champagne, shoes, and chocolate. Luxury, those, those incidental luxuries yeah. that you can still pay 10, 15 pounds or for shoes a bit more, but not the big designer brand, like three grand handbags and things. We were lucky at the city shop, people still bought chocolate because you were going to dinner and it was a price point that was still affordable. So people may have cut down elsewhere, but they were looking and going, what can I still buy for me mm. and my friends that makes me feel special? 
at the time, those key things were like a bottle of champagne, lipstick, chocolate. I think that, that, well, I know that's definitely what kept us going. And we grew through that period where other people were probably not. And that was right in the middle of the financial part of the city. And we did see people carrying boxes home of their belongings. It was, and we, we did at one point think, wow, this is going to hit us. It did. But we just diversified. We made sure we had things for everybody, price points for everybody. And launching hot chocolate. Everyone, mm-hmm. can, everyone still buys a coffee, no matter yeah. what. Yeah. Everyone's going to buy a coffee or a hot chocolate or a cup of tea by lunch. Yeah. So we tapped into that part of it to make it work. And I suppose that's the thing about making things on site, by hand, small batch. Yeah. It yeah. gives you the flexibility to to kind of shape what you're offering. It to. is, because I get asked constantly, even now, 14 years on, why, where's your factory? And great if you've got a factory out there, everyone, but I didn't want a factory. I wanted the, sh- the shops to have a space, no matter how tiny. Even the city shop was tiny downstairs, but we baked all our brownies, all our baked stuff there, all our brownies and things there. So it had the smell the feeling that things were being manufactured. So we could adapt very quickly. If an order came on something, we could do it there. We didn't have to contact the production space outside London and bring it in. Imagine just getting one order one, and then you have to bring it in and out. We just thought that was bonkers like, and a waste of money. So we made the basements of each of our properties into production kitchens. And that kept it creative, it kept the smell. Everyone still comments on the smell. Lots of chocolate shops don't smell of chocolate. That's because... They're not making it. are not making it there. Yeah. As soon as you open a bag of chocolate, or melt it, or bake it, or make up chocolate, the whole place smells of chocolate. Mm-hmm. So for us, it was a no-brainer. It's not easy. It's the hardest way to do it, because you've got your chefs and chocolatiers separated out. You've got things that you've got to move around a lot, because each kitchen's doing something different. It allows for this unique aroma and feeling our shops are working shops. We have to wrap and pack everything on the shop floor. Things come up from the kitchen. So it's a little bit different than if it's just a showroom chocolate shop where things are made elsewhere and you bring them in. Um, and I, I do love that style as well. When we first started, I, my inspiration was from France and Paris. And I, kept, I would go to all the chocolate shops every January for years, and I just look, you can either look through or there's a set of stairs, and I would always say, are they made here? I didn't care whether they were or weren't, it was because they were made. I just thought it was fascinating that there were lots of chocolate and patisserie in Paris that had been there for a long time, not particularly far away from us, and we hadn't picked that up. We, we were very Victorian still, and said, we've got to have a factory. Yeah. I thought, well, if you've got a space where you can make them on site, you make something right now and walk it through to the shop, like Juliette Binoche does in, Binoche does in chocolate, yeah. and put it down and it's super fresh, and you can make that every day. That's what, what the attraction was. I can make it every day and keep it fresh. Or if you came in, either of you came in and said, I've got a birthday on Friday, uh, please could you make me a strawberry and champagne truffle? Yes, we can. How many yeah. do you need? It was that bespoke element that made us popular and successful. Yeah, we wanted to talk about your flavours, and that's a, a thing that you're allowed to do because you're making it within your shops. You've got this incredible, huge range that's seasonal. It's yeah. changing, what, every week? Day. Some things change a lot, yeah. And I think it it blows people's minds in the industry how we now use twenty odd tons of chocolate a year by hand, tempered by hand, moulded by hand, created by hand. Um, thousands of recipes now because every single month there's a new collection. Mm. Um, that's that comes from my restaurant background because if you kept if you 
Anyone who's got a restaurant out there, if you don't change your menu, you're missing out on lots and lots of customers. It's lovely to go back to the yeah. same restaurant, and I do. But some things do have to change. Sometimes you want the classics that are there forever. You'd be angry if it came off. Mm. For us, that's salted caramel, for example. Yeah. Sea salted caramel. Um, but you change half your collection and it's regular. You want to come and you like the brand and you like the products. You're going, you're going to go back. What's new? What's coming out? What have you thought of this month? And at the beginning, right in those first few months, that was a real shake-up for my customers because no one, even I, wasn't used to that. People were asking, well, where's the one I had last month? I love that one. So what happened was that that developed, naturally, the house collection. Twelve chocolates that rarely or never change, that have become, over the years, the things people would always go back to. Passion fruit, curd, truffle, sea salt caramel, champagne, praline, marmite truffle, which has been on since nearly day one, not far off. They, they stayed on, but then I thought, well, I can't keep doing that because you're going to end up with way too many chocolates that are there all the time. So I thought the other half, so the 12 of the 24, would change all the time. It allows us to develop what we want, when we want, how we want. Be reactive as well and kind yeah. of, you know, you see this new ingredient and you can start using it and start testing with it. And also take something else that just doesn't work. Yeah. There's a few things we've made over the years, I can't remember what they are now, but that we'd put on and it just wouldn't move. And either we were a bit before our time maybe for that, that particular ingredient in chocolate, or it wasn't in people's minds, it wasn't on trend at the minute, or it didn't work. Well, we can take it off tomorrow yeah. and make something else, or react if something is new. Like, lucky that people send us new ingredients and new chocolate. So if, if we've got the opportunity just to make it and launch it quickly, brilliant. Very hard in the early days because there was no such thing as Instagram yeah. in those early days. Facebook was big, Twitter was just starting. So to launch a product, you have a very small customer base because no one knows about you. Hard takes a long time. Now, if I put a product on Instagram and say, seven days to go, two days to go, tomorrow this is launching, we do have fantastic people who will be listening who turn up because it's been put on Instagram. So that's even more reactive. Now we can, if I see something that inspires me, I can say, tomorrow there'll be one batch of... 200 chocolates or 1,000 chocolates, once they're gone, they're gone. Because we can only buy that amount of ingredient. Yeah, you can see the response to it as well. Instant response. Yeah. And they've got their phones. I mean, it's it's fantastic. And I'm not going to lie, I I did resist Instagram being a chef. Why do I need to do another social media? Actually, it it was my business partner and my PR that said, you've got to do it. And now, when you launch a product and people can see it, kind of test drive it first without... You know, they're going to make the journey to us. They don't need to make the journey to us. I'm grateful when people do make that journey to us because they can go elsewhere. We all can. But they've read it. They've believed what they've read. We, we believe in the products. We've tried it. And they've just gone by a picture and a little caption in that journey in their busy day to come and buy it and try it. And then they say, yes, if they like it or not, mm. it's fine. That's really special. So in those early days, I mean, anyone setting up a business now, I think, a great opportunity but you've got to hit that hit this hit Instagram particularly right at the beginning show off who you are why you're doing it have that authentic story and love your product as much or if not more than everybody else but it's all about other people mm-hmm. I tell my team constantly you know if someone walks through the door thank them by with a smile or just say hello you don't have people don't have to come in 
There's lots of distractions out there, yeah. but when they do, it's a really considered decision to walk in for a reason. What are some of the wildest flavours you've tried or that you've sold? Well, do you know, it's funny, because when, when, when we first started, it really was still rose and violet creams, caramels, fudges, orange creams, pralines, a lot of pralines, so very similar things. And the things that I thought weren't out there to a lot of my new customers at the time were like really out there and I couldn't get my head around it. I I remember just doing a white chocolate and pink peppercorn truffle thinking because I'd I'd used pink peppercorns as a chef for like a couple of decades and chocolate hadn't been used and I was like okay that's not that unusual but for people it was. Now what is unusual is not unusual. We've adapted to become so with well sorry we've been adapted to have such fine-tuned palettes now. That sea salted caramel when I launched it I remember Constantly hearing, why would you put salt in caramel? What are you doing? It's really odd. <laughs> and it was. It was. It was yeah. really, really unusual. And salted caramel's taken 15, well, 15, 16, 17 years now to become popular and mainstream. It still has that air of luxury. When I work with other brands and other people who want something commissioning where it becomes unusual, um, and what I see unusual isn't necessarily other people's unusual. We've done things... The biggest selling unusual chocolate was three years ago. Um, we launched it at Salon de Chocolat Chocolate Show, and it was a beef dripping caramel. Oh my god! So I started to play with caramel without using butter because our butter, our caramel is butter based. Yeah. So I thought, well, hang on a minute. There are other fats out there which aren't glamorous necessarily that could actually be used because they're not necessarily savoury. There is no fat out there that contains salt naturally. Mm. So duck fat, goose fat, chicken fat. Um, I did do a chicken fat caramel with Adam Handley at a frog restaurant a few years ago. Um, but the beef dripping caramel, it, it was from my childhood because we had beef dripping a lot up north. Uh, it's delicious. It was absolutely gorgeous. And then we did a duck a l'orange with duck fat caramel and a lot of comfy of orange. Then we did a goose fat chocolate. And then this year, Hayley, my uh, head chocolatier, and, well, she's head chocolatier, development chocolatier and kitchen manager. Huge job description. She's created a Christmas dinner chocolate, which is a beef dipping caramel with roast potatoes, sage and rosemary. Oh my gosh. So, but the first, the very first unusual chocolate was Marmite Truffle. Yeah. That was the lovely Lydia Slater, who at the time was editor-at-large of Sunday Times Style magazine. So a magazine I really respected. It had the things going up, going down, mm. and the things I loved. And she used to come in the comedy passage shop because she lived close by. And we just talked about flavours and my flavours were a bit more adventurous than other people's and she'd said you've not tried Marmite and if someone gives a northerner or anyone who's passionate about anything a challenge you're going to make it work and she said if you can make it work I'll feature you in Sunday Times style. It's about three months of work to get it to work um, and I loved Marmite we had it as kids. I so, tried so many different types of chocolate it ended up being Madagascar and I tried it with cream, butter, all kinds of fillings. It turned out to be one of the first water ganaches. Water ganache is very trendy now, but this is 15 years ago. I made it, and it was, still is, Marmite, unrefined Billington's sugar, cane sugar, water, and chocolate, and that's it. And I diluted it down, so it opened it up, and it's tangy and salty and sweet. And it went on the collection, and thanks to Lydia, she, at that point, did this little piece which said the Heston Blumenthal of chocolate, which is very kind and gracious of her to write that at the time. 
It's, it's still on. We tried to take it off once about eight years ago because <laughs> we were so annoyed. It's a talking point. It is a little bit gimmicky. It gets people into looking at our chocolates in a way that is a bit more creative. Yeah. I now have a Marmite bar, which has Marmite in it. And we've got, we just had a Marmite and grilled cheese on toast truffle. So it, it's because it's salty and sweet, and we all mm. now love salty and sweet. I'm looking at salty and sweet popcorn directly opposite me. <laughs> yeah. Whereas 15 years ago, that wouldn't be there. Sea salt and caramel wouldn't be there. So that evolution of creative flavours has been driven by customers too. That's interesting. And I think that's, mm. that's a lovely position to be in, mm. when you can just literally go, I'm going to try something really unusual today, this, this and this, and it might work. And I can test it on my customers and say, we'll launch this tomorrow. <laughs> if you like it, sell it. Yeah, really cool. It's yeah. very cool, actually. Yeah. I think because you, you've got to run your business, but not forget that part, and that's the bit that is tricky for me: running the business and not forgetting why it started. Mm. Which I think every chef who owns their business will fight with it at some point. Yeah, because you end up with so many other roles. Mm. You're exactly. not just a chef anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that's when. You know, your employees look at you and say, you're still a chef, but I'm, I'm doing lots of, I'm doing HR, I'm doing wages, I'm doing tax, I'm doing... Yeah, you've got so many hats. But the initial thing, why did you start? Somebody, somebody or a group of people said they liked what you were doing and it was different. You don't force the different. No. You just want to be known for being great at what you do and a bit, a little bit more daring, maybe, mm. than others. Yeah. And I, I think the whole kind of... What we've heard so far, I, I think there's nothing forced about what you're doing. It sounds like everything's just very natural and just feels very right for you. If you force it, you would, you'd know, and I'd know. I mean, and if I develop something, I'm trying to make something, make it happen. It's never a good chocolate. I mean, it mm. doesn't. There's no point in doing something for the sake of it. Yeah. And I'll be very honest with any client that says, "I really want to make this particular product work in chocolate." And I go, "Look, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. We're going to force it so much that it just becomes a bit contrived and a bit." fake. There's no point. No point trying to be better than anyone else. You've got to be as good as you you are yourself and if you can be better tomorrow than you believe you were yesterday. Um, I see salt and caramel, you know, can I make it better? Probably now I probably could re redevelop it and someone would say, well it's better than your last one. But there's no point changing it for the sake of it. Because it is what it is. And I don't want to change it for that and be forced. Mm you know, into that. Yeah. You touched on using different types of chocolate and I mm. think that's a really interesting point of difference in your shops is that it's not just this is a dark, this is a milk, or this is a white, and it's not even just um, a percentage, you're going in on the brand name, so it would say yes. Gittard 38% white or something similar. Um, could we talk about that, yeah, that's I, really interesting. I don't get asked that a lot, which is nice, so it's nice to be asked then, um, because there was a point, you will know, I will know, well for me, for my, I mean my, the age I am, it used to be red, white and pink wine, and then all of a sudden we started to know the grape varieties, and the regions, the vintages, the growers, and it became more complex. Chocolate was white, milk and dark for such a long time, and I never quite understood it, and there's still... There's a lot of chocolate companies just stick with one white, one milk, and maybe a couple of dark chocolates. And then they make their collection of chocolates, but they tend to taste very similar. Mm. Still lovely, and you'd still eat the box and you'd love them. But for me, I can't make every ingredient work with two or three varieties of chocolate. 
It gets less, so white chocolate we have a couple of varieties, milk we have a few more, and dark we have loads. And it's because we now have more bean-to-bar makers, so making chocolate from the bean. There's more accessibility thanks to Instagram and Twitter because you can contact people much more freely. When we first started we were just reliant on distributors who stocked that brand of chocolate, that brand and that brand. So we buy from them. Now we can work with brands more freely. They sent chocolate to us. But with chocolate, the fortunate thing is we've nearly all been brainwashed to feel that 70% is best. Yeah. And it means nothing in terms of quality, flavour, taste, texture, where it's from, who grew it. It's just a percentage of cocoa solid in that piece of chocolate. And any, all the chefs out there, all the food writers, need to know that saying 70% puts people off. Because if you are new to dark chocolate, you should be going for a low percentage in the 60s. Because quite often they can be more complex, but not as strong of tannins and those, that bitter sweetness. If you don't like bitter, you don't like bitter. You may never get to 80%. It's not a competition, you know. So if you like 65%, it's great. And I, we still struggle with that a little bit. And within the industry and in the media, because it doesn't need to be high percentage to be fantastic. An example of that is we had some samples of new chocolate um, from a company called MIA, made in Africa, just this week. I'd never had them before from Madagascar, and they had a 60, I think it was 65% Madagascan, which I could not stop eating. So, so I know that when I can't stop, in the middle of my day when I've had a lot of chocolate already, there's something there. They had the same chocolate at 82 or 83%. I tried it, I was like, well, actually, it might be 75. Ooh, 75, it's just too strong. That something had gone missing between the two. And even though I loved dark chocolate, right up to 100%, that character of that chocolate, for me, was off balance at 75%. But at 65, it was absolutely spot on. And that means it's still dark chocolate, you still enjoy it, it had something that the other one didn't, which just demonstrates the percentage isn't isn't just the percentage. The flavour changed. Not too strong for that character of bean. So to celebrate it's the 60%, which is our Gitard, who I work with, Gitard Shop from San Francisco, all their origins at the minute are 65%. Because they believe the character of their beans is uh, shining more. It's more representative at 65% and if it's stronger and higher. So we need to move that goalposts and say percentage, it's nothing to do with that really, it's to do with where it's grown, the countries, the varieties. That then means, if you're starting out in chocolate, so everyone listening who just makes a truffle at Christmas as a gift or for after dinner, you want to make, say, six different ones, you buy six different origins of chocolate, so you say you bought Madagascar, Dominican Republic, Venezuela, Ecuador, so you make the same recipe and you've got six completely different tasting chocolates by just by buying a different chocolate. And that's how we start even now. The ingredients, we, ingredients get put on the table, we taste them, and then we pick the chocolate that we think are chocolates, because there's up to four or five varieties in, some, in single, one of our single chocolates, depending on how we blend and balance it out. That makes it more exciting, using just one milk, one white, one dark. It's more exciting for you, for everyone listening, and for me and my team to make. There's so many varieties out there now with different characters. The same bean from the same plantation, roasted a bit more, roasted a bit less, different percentage, different type of sugar, 
different amount of cocoa butter, some have got vanilla and some don't. So that one thing turns into all these different characters. Same with wine. That's worth the choice. That's brilliant, that we are. <laughs> yeah. we are we, we, we're bombarded with chocolate, which is brilliant. Some of it's fantastic, some of it's not. We're very honest if people ask us for feedback. Because what I think every producer needs to hear from a chocolatier is, can it be used to make chocolates? What application is it suitable for? Because not all chocolate is suitable for every application. And would you buy it? Mm. That's the key thing. Because when you make it yourself, you fall in love with it. When you give it to your mum, she falls in love with it. When you give it to a stranger, they might not. Mm. Yeah. And every customer, unless they're a regular customer, is a stranger. And they need to love it within those first seconds. You know, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Within the first seconds. Or you know at the end when the aftertaste is not very nice. Yeah. And for me, chocolate can taste great, absolutely fantastic for ages, but the aftertaste can be really off. Mm. And you'd, you wouldn't choose it. That's, I mean, yeah. that's why it's compl complex, complicated and complex now. We've got all this choice. The same for you if you're cooking with chocolate. Which one do you choose? I get asked that a lot. Which oh, chocolate sad. should I buy? And I'm like, wow, it's such a big answer now compared to 10 years ago. Because there's so much choice. But aren't we lucky that there's so much job? Good problem, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Exactly. And we think more, and that's the biggest bit of advice, if you keep buying the same chocolate to use all the time, next time buy a different one. Don't be afraid, it'll still taste of chocolate, but with a different character. And then you find the character you like from all the origins around the globe. And then you start to hone in on, without knowing it, you're being very, everyone's being very clever product developers at home. Chefs are because they'll pick the thing, they'll go back to things they like and start putting ingredients with those things that they like and not with others. And using and thinking of different chocolates for different applications. Yeah. So if I'm making ganache, I'd quite like this one, or if I'm going to put it as a chocolate chip and a cookie, I quite like this one, sort of thing. It's a good example. The viscosity, so the, the, the flowability, the pourability of chocolate, is a really key sign on how you can achieve or not achieve successful chocolate. Bitard, their origins are quite thin in texture when you melt them. There's quite a lot of cocoa butter in there so you can get a very thin shell or coating on your chocolate. They have a chocolate called Onyx which is a robust 70% yeah. dark. We use it for our brownies. Other manufacturers like Fire Tree we use from the Solomon Islands and Papua New Guinea. Both of those, the Onyx and the Fire Tree chocolates, are quite thick. When we melt them, they're heavy and they hold their shape a bit. There's not a lot of additional or any additional cocoa butter added to the chocolate when it's made, so that when it melts, it flows. So we know we cannot make a thin-shelled chocolate from those chocolates. Yeah. But we can make an Easter egg with a nice thick shell. We can enroll by coating the chocolate. We can dip. We can do certain things with it. For everyone listening, if, they think, if they've got a chocolate, taken it home and they've melted it and it's quite thick, you're never going to make a thin-shelled chocolate with that. You've got to then think about what, what is it useful for. Baking, yes. Dipping, yes. Spreading, piping. But if you want that thin shell, delicate, you've got to go for a chocolate where the ingredients, it's got additional cocoa butter added into it. And sometimes we have to add cocoa butter into our chocolate to make it thinner. I get asked that a lot. Why does the chocolate I've bought not do? Either what I've said in a demonstration, TV or television, or uh, uh, my books and things, or what another recipe book says. Sometimes we're not allowed to say the brand names of the chocolate we're using. If it's on TV or in books. Yeah, yeah. And if you just say, use a 72% Venezuelan, well, there's probably 30 or 40 different ones you can buy. And they're all going to be different. Particularly with white chocolate and milk chocolate, they're all very different between the brands, even though 
still chocolate, still made with cocoa beans. You know you've bought chocolate, but it can be different. And that is something that's hard to help people with at home when they start making recipes. Yeah. It's a whole new education yeah. for people. Yeah. But yeah. not necessarily technically, just if you buy one that's too thick, buy a different one. Mm. You know what yeah. I mean? That's kind yeah. of like yeah. you find out by buying and you find out what you can use and not use and not waste because good chocolate's expensive as we all know. Mm. Yeah. So interesting. Within your stores and your team, what's the kind of process of when you're bringing out or when you're thinking about your new flavours? Do you have kind of meetings with everyone and do people, does everyone kind of put in ideas for things? I'd love to say we all have a creative room that we sit around a table and it all just flows out. Like, you know, you do see that on TV documentaries where everyone's <laughs> sat around and it's, it doesn't work like that for me. I can't do it. Like, when I wrote my first book, I, I did what you do when you're at college and uni. You enjoy yourself, you do your stuff, and you leave it to the last minute to write the whole thing. I can't force it. So for us, we talk. We are talking about flavours and lots of other rubbishy conversations, you know, random stuff when you're doing thousands of things. Mm. You just talk about random things, relationships. But when we're talking about products, we're talking about ingredients all the time, and we have ideas books in each kitchen. So the chefs... Or the retail team can write ideas in the book. That'd be dessert, rhubarb and crumble, you know, whatever it is. And then we reference back to those. We can just talk about things. An example, Kieran, one of my uh, commie chocolatiers, he just discussed about doing a filled cookie. The next day, we made a salted caramel filled cho triple chocolate chip cookie with milk chocolate. So it happened immediately from a conversation because we're trying to change a product. Others will be, for example, Christmas we develop in March, March before, so we can hit press, develop it in packaging and shelf life testing. So we're now talking about next Christmas and what that will mean. Sometimes pick a theme or a premise. So for Valentine's Day, um, it'll be one year. Our most successful collection three years ago was Romantic Cities. So Paris, Barcelona, Rome, and the food around them and the chocolates became food from those countries, those cities. But it's very, very, very organic. It's rarely, if ever, a sit-down, round-table process. That can work sometimes, but you find that if I'm sat around with my full team of 10 chefs and we go, right, everyone needs to come up with 50, uh, 12 new chocolates, there's silence, because you just can't switch it on. It's kind of like you saying that would be forced and contrived, whereas yeah. when you're in the kitchen, and you're just going to, I don't know, you're zesting some citrus or something, yeah. that's when you might think, oh, what about if we put it with this? And if you're zesting a lemon or an orange in the middle of winter, it's amazing when anyone walks through the kitchen from the shop floor, the retail team or any, or any of the chefs, and everyone breathes in and goes, oh, summer. You automatically have these triggers in your brain. When we were developing the Christmas collection, and we started making the recipes end of April, we were only just four months away from Christmas. I thought, oh, it smells Christmas in cinnamon, <laughs> yeah. mulled wine. And we're like, we've just had Christmas and Easter at Valentine. It needs to be that, that fluid. Yeah. But, oh, I should say, however, I hate the word but. However, <laughs> clients come to us saying, can you develop this? We have to then just come up with those ideas that are rigid and make it work. They may have a product for us to develop with. We're doing a project with Martini right now. Um, which I remember from my childhood because the slogan was like any time, any place, anywhere. It was almost like carefree drinks. 
they've got this fantastic new vermouth. Vermouth is, is really stepping up in the hole. It really is. It'll take over gin, I think. And they are botanical and natural and really unusual. And we've created two chocolates to celebrate them both. We had to just use the vermouth. We would dictate to, quite right, they're the characters in, that, in the Umbrato, they're the characters in the Rubino. What can you do? There's no creative discussion. It's we need to find chocolates, varieties, bean varieties, textures that just celebrates those flavours. It's a bit of both. And I think we're doing that for all our clients. So we supply hotels, restaurants, corporates. We're doing that a lot. So having the opportunity just to come up with ideas is useful and healthy. Haley and I did sit down for Valentine's Day. But we didn't come up with flavours. We came up with a theme. Because Londoners don't particularly like heart-shaped things. And you're all probably shaking your heads at home now going, yes we do, yes we do. <laughs> In our stores, it's a bit too obvious yeah. to have a big heart-shaped chocolate. What we need yeah. to do is think of what Valentine's represents fully. So, i.e. not just loving a partner, a wife, it's your mum, it's your friend, everything. And then see how we can find a way into that. Maybe music, maybe films, maybe holidays, things people do around Valentine's, and then build a collection around that. Because it's very easy to go, right, we'll do a rose cream, raspberry shot, strawberry champagne, yeah. the obvious things. We'll still do a strawberry champagne truffle, everyone, don't worry, because it's very popular every year. Um, and we buy a frozen um, strawberry puree for that, because buying fresh strawberries in February, February <laughs> they taste of nothing. They taste horrible. So we have to then build around the, the availability of ingredients in February, because we're very seasonal, mm. isn't huge. Mm. Lots of root vegetables, you know. But but next year we've we've we have an idea which Haley and I will then work on. A bit like an artist, you have an idea and you might do ten canvases before you mm. get it right. Mm. It's still relevant, you'll still show them. We'll do that with job, we'll make we'll do it and then we'll tweak it on the way. It's just all the media and press want things earlier and earlier and earlier. And for us, we're so seasonal and so organically creative. Sometimes I find it hard to decide what my Valentine's collection is in number. Because you don't feel like it's February. I think that's no. what's really hard. You're not you're not in that moment. You can try or you know you can try your best. You know in April to think about Christmas, but. You're just not there. It's quite difficult to... I think Christmas is easier because we all have in our heads, if we close our eyes, of what is Christmas to you? Depending on the gen your generation. Yeah. Some people will always say cinnamon and orange. Some people will say cloves and nutmeg. And We have that and it's mm. pretty universal. It's a very British Christmassy thing. Apart from things now that are coming in, like stolen gingerbreads and all that kind of thing. Scandy flavours. Mm. Um, but with it, Valentine's, it's a personal thing. If you've never had a Valentine's Day, yeah. you know, it's like, what does it mean? And we have to do a collection that isn't just for people who are in love or want to be in love. So we don't want to make it that rigid. But to be, well, I'm going to buy these for myself because I actually love myself a lot. You know, that's, it's got to be down to that level and just buy them because you like them. And they just happen to be yeah. there for that Valentine's Eve period, you know. Yeah. I Makes think, it tricky. <laughs> yeah, but I think you yeah. definitely get that when you, you buy them. You don't feel like, oh, I'm buying a really Valentine's-y chocolate. It's, it's one that could go two ways, yeah. both ways. Because there are lots of companies that do that incredibly well. 
Yeah. You know, when you want something that's a big chocolate heart, so many people do that and do it well, and that's a different either clientele or a different um, expression when you give it to somebody. Mm. We find that now people are spending down a little bit for Valentine's, so you buy a, bo- a nine-piece or a four-piece box and a bottle of something and something else, rather than mm. the big... Yeah. I think that big showy expression is gone. It's a bit too ostentatious now. Yeah. I want a box of a hundred chocolates this big. Yeah, massive heart. Yes. <laughs> it's more about I know he or she loves this, mm. and four is enough because we're going for dinner. We're doing this. Yeah. The experiential side is growing, and if the chocolates can fit in with the experience that people are doing, that is a little bit more exciting for us to work around as well. You can be more creative and more thoughtful about it. I think you become your own design agency without knowing it. Because you can't, you know, it's okay selling popcorn, you know what popcorn does, but there are some key things like cinema, film. So if you've got the cinema, we have popcorn, but then you think, oh, it's films. That's been, that's been, there's some heritage behind that. There's some, where did it come from? How did it start? And if you start picking into it, you get this huge pool of kind of, well, we've got to focus on film. All the films around that period isn't, Everyone has their favourite Christmas film, so you can go, well, it's one of the chocolates is going to be that Christmas film. Don't know which one, by the way, I just made that up. And there isn't a Christmas film chocolate in the collection. <laughs> yes. Cool idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Another time. Yeah. <laughs> you told us before we started recording that you're still in production. Yes. So how, like, what kind of roles are you taking on and how are you managing them across your week? Well, I know there are lots of people setting up chocolate businesses and starting at home, starting small and wanting to make it bigger. And what I've learned is that you have to completely know that as soon as you start manufacturing, that feeling of I'm making it at home, hobby style, small batch thing goes out the window very quickly. Mm -hmm. You've got to think big even if you're producing small. And the way I've learn to do it. It's not been easy for my own head. I've made lots of mistakes and I still don't get it right. But I don't know anyone who does get it right fully. So until three months ago we had three stores. We had to close our city store because we couldn't agree a new lease. It just got so expensive for us it wasn't going to work. So splitting myself between three kitchens was really difficult. But my team was so good that I could just dip in and out of the Royal Exchange store. Now we've got two. I plan my week well ahead. You have to look at what is being made and what skill, what skills have I got or what managerial skills have I got that need me in a certain place at a certain time. For example, yesterday, we've just changed the way we hand coat our brownie bites, which are brownies cut up into four, dipped and rolled in chocolate. It's a very slow process and we've sped it up now and we've done a new technique, coating it twice and it's got a lovely ripply effect on it. A new technique for us, for us. So I was there to train the team. And today I'm at my Camden Passage store to make all the brownie mince pies and mince tarts while the team do other things so I can teach them at the same time. I've got my retail teams to manage at the same time as well. Then the back of house packing, all the corporate orders going out and the supplying hotels and restaurants. And all I can do to make that work well is to be very rigid with my structure. But my Google Calendar, uh, even though I'm very analogue, um, and I block out, and I think everyone should do it whether you're just starting out or not. You block out everything as though it's a meeting. So say every lunchtime you have, you have to go to the gym for an hour to clear your mind. You block it out as a meeting, like this doesn't change. No one can change it unless something really bad happens. 
and I try and stick to realistic timescales. I know for me to get from Soho Shop to Islington can take anywhere, you know, say in London, from 25 minutes to an hour, depending how you get there, what stops you. It's, it's about being hard on yourself and saying, I'm not, I've got to have this regimented routine, but I won't pull myself away from my team if they need me. I won't pull myself away from my team if there's a problem. I'll restructure my day. The problem I have as a personal thing is balancing the creative with business. Because the business needs to run. In my mind, it's the boring bit, the financial bit, the organising bit, the logistics, the packaging, the, all that stuff. I want to be creating and being fun. It's basically the spending the money bit, isn't it? Like, yeah. You want to do the fun bit. And the business will always drag you the other way. Plus, it's, that's the bigger part. Your invoices, oh, yawn. Uh, invoices, chasing for payment, and all that side of thing is so important to make sure that your documents are right and you're recording things correctly. Um, your manufacturing admin is correct. And just to balance it out, I don't think I've always found the, the easy way to do that. And I know when I'm getting unhappy is because it's, I'm doing heavy on the business side and not enough on the creative side. But it's clearly when it's needed. I, find, I even find it hard to like express because you need to have people in your business that can do lots of different things. When we have the three shops, we've got up to 40 members of staff in the business. <clears throat> a lot to, to manage. We're a bit less now, uh, but still up to 30. And just balancing that and knowing where everyone is, it's my responsibility, duty of care to them to know where they are, what they're doing, are they okay? I've got my business partner, James, who luckily does boring stuff, the AT, uh, and the, the wages and the timesheets, he, he deals with that bit. And then I deal with the running of the business and, and managers and appraisals and HR. And Because you're a small business, you don't have HR, you don't have, well, I think you are HR, you are solving all the problems at once. Um, but it could, you, when it comes down to it, we start the business out of creativity. Mm. And that's what it's got to stem back to all the time, at any point. Be strict, be rigid, be realistic. I wasn't at the beginning, and you end up beating yourself up. Admit when you can't do something, admit when you're wrong, admit lots of sorries. Sorry I didn't do that as well as I thought I could, because I don't think there's one single business guidebook that could give you the everything. There's so many styles of yeah. managing. There's no one way of doing it, that's for sure. I think keep it human as possible. Yeah. Like work with each person, because one, one style doesn't work for everybody. To nurture people more than others, and try and understand them more than others. Even when you're breaking up inside, because you've got way too much to do. Um, and your work, the other thing is, just believe me when I say, when you start your business, well, I can take holidays when I like, I can be flexible, I can blah, blah, blah. You it can't, you, you really can't. You'll take less holidays, you'll, have, you'll work more, you'll have less t free time. Because, not because it's, you're not being efficient, because you love it more than anybody else, and you can't do it as good as anyone else. Even though I know that I'm employing people that are better than me. They can do it better than me, but I have to believe that to keep myself going. Some of my team are way better than me um, at what they do. That's why I've employed them. Yeah. Um, as long as I keep, I know that and I admit that. And I will say to them, you do this better than me, so I can't make that decision. Make it. If, if you get it wrong, don't worry, we'll make it better. If, I, if you get it wrong and I scream and shout, it's probably because I've got an issue with myself. And I'm stressed, I'm tired. I apologise. 
Sounds like a very nice environment to work in, very encouraging. It's, diff- it's different, and I think it's difficult for my team because there's me on the site all the time. So it's just one person, and they're coming in and out, and I think sometimes they feel I could give them a little bit more. And that's the juggling bit, because I do lots of things externally, work-wise as well, whether it's TV, brand stuff. That's to keep the business exposed You've got to mm. expose yourself in the right, you know what I mean, expose yourself in the business a lot to fight through the competition so people see you and feel you. So that juggling that on top of that is tricky as well. But you'll always beat yourself up, you'll always feel like you're not quite good enough, or you're not doing it well enough. But that's, you've got to turn it around into a positive and think, well, that's just your brain saying, keep going, you can achieve, you can do better, even though you can't make that chocolate any better. It just keeps you motivated, I think. But that's for me personally. Yeah. Depends whether you've got a lifestyle-based business or whether you've got this business that you ought to keep growing and keep building. And those two are very, two very different kinds of business. No, I think some really good invi- advice yeah. in there, actually. And um, I think you're right about seeing everyone that works for you as an individual. And I think a lot of businesses get that wrong, where staff are just staff and they're all kind of one and they're all addressed as one and I think you're right I think it's easy to think if I'm employing say four of the same role say I'm employing four trainee chocolatiers that they will all train at the same rate be good at the same skills at the same time I learned that the hard way by expecting that you know I'm very I think I'm very good at owning up to my mistakes which you have to do as a business owner and thinking, well, if I employ three people, they're all going to be at this level in three months, this level in six, they're not. They will be better than the other person who's progressed at that other skill, because they've got another skill they've progressed at. And it makes it harder to manage, because you want everyone to be at the same level. Then why should they be? You want them to be confident of what they're doing, but not necessarily going to do that at the same rate. Um, yeah. we had, we've done something... I think important in our business all our chefs we get together once a month and we talk and the first meeting was about how we each of us felt which is unusual for them to hear how I feel as boss because again you're exposing yourself a bit and I asked them to tell everyone something about themselves that we didn't know <clears throat> that meant we could communicate with each other better or I could manage them better so if I saw somebody was one day really jolly like for weeks have been jolly and then all of a sudden they're really quiet does that mean they're in a mood, they've got the wrong side of bed, or their mental health is suffering, or they've had some bad news, or they're not happy at work? There's loads of reasons. And I now know with all my team, if they are super quiet and focused, it's because they're really busy or they're feeling stressed or anxious. And then you can deal with it. Yeah. Um, and, and the opposite as well, if someone's really happy, what you're happy about, great, fantastic, productive, you know. We now know, all, all of us. Can just we did, someone doesn't need to announce it or say I'm not feeling great today we just know then you can support each other a bit better and then move the jobs around and say you can do a bit more there you can do a bit less there but it all balances out I think more mm. businesses should do that it's hard when it's a huge business I think I've only experienced my s- small business but it's about being brave enough to say to somebody I'm going to tell you something about me even though I'm your boss that you didn't know so I'm the same as you, I'm human like you, I'm just trying to do a different job than you, but trying to get to the same result. Yeah, I was looking yesterday just to see if you were in 
Harrods or self, you know, the big yeah. department stores, and I couldn't find anything. So I assume that everything's sold from your two shops. And I've got yeah. a little bit of an idea from what you've said today, but could you kind of explore that a little bit yeah. more? <clears throat> I'll try and keep it concise because there are a few reasons. We have sold in departments like Selfridges before, and we do get approached by people like Harrods yeah. to move in. And we found a few things that didn't work for us, for our type of product. We don't preserve anything, everything's a bit fragile, temperature sensitive, um, a bit more expensive because we hand make at every stage, no tempering machines, no enrobing lines, so it's more expensive because the labour's there. And we use expensive chocolate, not using a, any of the cheaper brands or cheaper quality chocolate. So we were struggling with things like 90 day payment terms, yeah. which are common, particularly when we first started. And it was, I was very proud to have my products in Selfridges, for example. Um, but it didn't work that easy. Things were getting broken. The temperature was not quite stable. The payment terms were long. And James and I just thought, well, if we control everything and we sell where, through our shops and open more shops. And then when online shops started, so we sold through Amazon for a while. We sold through Uber Eats. <clears throat> we did some hampers through a company called Craved. And so on. Those smaller things work better for us because we're controlling the product and it still comes from us. People are using a platform to buy it. When we then sent to another shop, we've found that on the bigger stores it doesn't work quite as well. It works better as bo at boutique level, boutique size, but not necessarily for those bigger stores. Um, we didn't want the product being sent back because it got damaged and so on and so on. So it is just about, I suppose, holding on to what, what we do and do well and keeping it authentic for us. And we could we could still sell into department stores, but if you go into Selfridges, it's amazing. I think we just revamped their, their whole sweet section. Yeah. And it's incredible. If you want, if you name a chocolate brand, you'll get it there. So I praise them fully because it's amazing. That freaks me out that there's so much competition. I have to go, why would people buy from me rather than there? Would they look past it? There's so much there, I think, well, I want people to come into my store and have the experience of talking to someone knowledgeable about that particular bean variety, that chocolate, having a taster, uh, smelling the chocolate, having that more experiential service than just picking it off shelf. Um, that doesn't mean we may never do it again. It doesn't mean that everyone out there has to feel pressured to do it. It depends how, you know, some of it is, I'd love to see my products in in Liberty, in Selfridges, and that means a lot to you if that's what you want. But quite often the margins are tight, very tight. It quite often it could be sale or return on product, which you don't really want it back if it's food. So um, it's just about what works for you, and it's don't feel guilty about saying no if someone approaches you. I don't think it's an opportunity missed because you will find another way to sell your product through other avenues and now there are a lot more than when we started. When we started it really was selling to department stores. Now, so many online shops, selling through Instagram, selling in boutiques, you know. Subscriptions. It's, subscriptions, yeah. yeah it's so easier now just to get your product out there. Um, so don't worry about it too much. I think that's a really good answer. I think there is this idea that that's the kind of end goal, but it yeah just may not work for you. No. The other way is licensing, and I will never ever say I would never do this. If I could have my brownies, for example, or something, in every Waitrose, yeah, I will look. I would look at that. Or develop a product with a supermarket brand. Yeah. That isn't exactly what I do in my business here, but then you license the recipe, you have it manufactured, so people can get. People are aspirational. People can have a little taste of you, 
all around the country, yes. People are said to be all about selling out, but it's not really. If you're in control... It's a different thing, yeah. You, you said, I want people to have a slightly better experience than they had yesterday. And we can do it this way, and I will do it. And it's a way of bringing something, your shop, to them, if they're not, if they're not able to access London. Exactly. You're... Exactly. So you mentioned about going to the gym, and we're always yes. really interested in how people who are managing a lot mm. of people, running businesses, really busy, balance that with having, you know, a personal life yeah. and not getting, you know, too um, burnt out by it. Mm. So what what are your strategies for that? I think I've learned the hard way. I've been burnt out a few times, and burnout doesn't just, you know... Experience of burnout isn't just until I'm the sulfur, I can't move, it's mental burnout as mm -hmm. well. And that mental burnout is quite from worse because yeah. you want to do it, but your body can, but your brain won't. Um, for me, so I did my first ever evening class this year. I just had to do something that was not related to my business of chocolate because when you own it, you don't switch off when you go home. People email in all the time, it's retail, things are going all the time. So I did a, a ceramics class for 12 weeks. At Scandihurst up in Islington. It was amazing. I made loads of things and just absorbed myself for two or three hours on a Wednesday night once a week, not thinking about anything else. Mm. I do, I'm a, I'm, I'm a serial exerciser and it annoys me because I can exercise well for a period and then I just drop out. I've got my gym stuff with me after, we'll be going to the gym after because it clears my head, it folk, makes me focus and I get annoyed when I don't do it, but I go through periods of needing to. So my drive at the minute is not to go and try and do as much as I can. Then you get gym burnout. You get tired and you ache all the time. And you're trying to do your job and you're tired and you ache all the time. So what I'm just doing is half an hour to an hour, at least five days a week. And if my head is full, I will run. If I'm feeling just a little bit weak, I'll do some weights. You know, I start to listen to myself a bit more, listen to my body a bit more. I've got a dog. Walking a dog is great if anyone's got a dog. And cooking at home, I cook every night for myself and my partner Luke. And that, even though I cook all day, it's different. It takes me out of a scenario. But I still find it hard to switch off. I'm down to not to be alert. And I think that's where, particularly when you've got your own business, you can lose the love of it, maybe, or lose the drive eventually. Is that you're not thinking of anything else and you forget things that are happening outside. I remember once, it was so acute, I was so acutely aware of it, it was in the first three years and I had, literally had Christmas Day off. Only three days in three years, like Christmas Day. Because you need to run the business. And I didn't see the leaves burn from autumn to winter. And I remember leaving the Islington shop, walking around the corner, and I said to someone, when, when did the leaves fall? So I hadn't seen them change. Mm. And I remember thinking, God, that's, that's bad, isn't it? Because... You can't be imprisoned in your business. If you, if, if you are, then it's probably the wrong thing to do, or you need to change something. So it's walking as well. So I made a point now of walking a lot, walking a different route occasionally. Simple things that sound very... They're in every self-help book, I'm sure, but it's very easy to get pulled into doing the same thing all the time, and it does become the rat race. It's very Groundhog Day, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's the simple things. 
it's it's just cooking for yourself instead of getting a quick takeout that you don't think about. It's exactly. walking instead of jumping in a car. But it is those things that feed you just bit London, by bit. Particularly London, look up. Yeah. I know I've heard it more now than ever before. We can see about twenty feet ahead of us at any one time. Really, if you're looking at you're looking at concrete and brick a lot, and we don't see we don't see a sunrise or a sunset, which our bodies need to wake up and go to sleep. But a lot of looking up, I get my team to go outside at lunchtime. Ten minutes, go out, even if it's raining, just go outside. It's, we, it's hard. Sometimes we forget to do those really simple things, or treat yourself to something that you haven't bought in ages. Or just going into a shop you haven't been in. It's funny how you become, become totally desensitised to doing the things you used to love and you forget to do them. Mm-hmm. Or you talk yourself out of doing them. Or you're too tired to do them on a day off or an evening off. Well, actually, you've got someone there that can go, I know you're tired, but come on, we're going for a drink. Or we're going to... You will feel better later for doing it. Yeah. Um, and you, but then your, your creativity and productivity gets better by doing that. And you also... I look forward to things a lot more than I used to. So when I used to go out all the time for the business, you know, going, great going out. Now when I go out, it's, it's an occasion. It feels really nice. You know, you, you treat yeah. it with a bit more respect. And you don't get smashed. You know, you, you, you have a nice glass of wine. You, you really enjoy it. Cause you, know, you know you have to go at 6 o'clock or 5 o'clock the next morning. So you, those things change and you adapt them into the way you want them to be. Um, don't, don't succumb to peer pressure. Just one more drink. No. I've got to get up at six o'clock. <laughs> yeah. I think that's good advice. It's when, you, when you've got a few business. It's just difficult, isn't it? It really is. But I think people that work in offices and start at nine don't realise that you can't start be Start at nine, you have a coffee break, a lunch break, an afternoon break and go home at five. No. You know, I, if I was I wouldn't know what to do with the time. I wouldn't. You know, yeah. it's... But, but I suppose as a as business owner, you want to be seen to be working hard and don't feel guilty if you are leaving. I've suffered from this for years. I was very busy, but I would feel guilty about leaving work before anyone else or feel guilty about doing other things because you want to set that example, but you will burn out. You will absolutely, and I did, completely burn out. You know, your team work with you because they love what you do. And they love your brand. Just represent them when you're there. You are allowed to leave and <laughs> not feel guilty. I think that's a nice yeah. uh, place to end. Would you like to tell people where they can find you online and where your stores are? Yes, our stores are on 33 Camden Passage in Islington, two minutes walk from Angel Tube, and, and uh, 143 Wardour Street, which is on the corner of Broadwick Street, between Shaftesbury Avenue and Oxford Street. And the website is paulayoung.co.uk. And all the social medias, it's Paul A. Young, find chocolates or Paul underscore A underscore Young. You'll find it. Perfect. Yes. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you. That was amazing. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Instagram at What's Cooking Podcast, on Twitter at What's Cooking Pod, or send us an email, thewhatscookingpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, then be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating. Bye.